sisters, it is a joy as always to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. And so I would invite you to do just that by turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And as you are doing so, please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word this morning. Galatians chapter 5 is where we find ourselves as we continue making our track through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, and we find ourselves in probably the most familiar passage in all of Galatians this morning, and that is beginning in verse 19 through verse 26. So find in your copy of God's Word, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, and as you do so, let us give attention now to the Word of the Lord. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these, <coughs> and <coughs> things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated, brothers and sisters. Anyone with a green thumb knows that gardens require workers. Soil must be prepared, seeds planted, and of course that's only the beginning. So you have to water and pull weeds and keep the insects away and hope that the sun shines. But the, the point is that a, a lush, fruitful garden doesn't just happen automatically. You cannot be utterly passive. Then, of course, you have the weeds. Passivity is the breeding ground for weeds. You didn't plant them, and you pull them every opportunity you have, but despite your best efforts, they just keep showing up. In our place, they grow up through the concrete. Friends, if you want weeds, they just do nothing. But if you want fruit, it will take tender. Oh, beloved, much is the same when it comes to our individual lives as well as the life of our church. For the garden of our soul to bear fruit and not weeds, you better believe that it will take tender. Now, as we come to the passage of Scripture in front of us this morning, as I said, we come to perhaps the most well-known passage in all of this little letter to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. And before we sort of dig in, let me very quickly set the passage in context. As the people of God, we are people of the Spirit. And that is to say, to receive Christ, and to rely on Christ, and to rest in Christ, that is to mean that we are people who live in and by and through the Holy Spirit. To have Christ is to have 
the Spirit. I say that because when we come to this well-known passage about the fruit of the Spirit, verse 1, and living by the Spirit, verse 1, this is not coming out of my feeling. As Christians, we are not only loved by our Father, and we are not only joined to our Savior, we are also preserved in the Christian life through the Spirit. That's who we are, do you grace? We live in the Spirit because the Spirit lives in us. Or if I can return to that garden metaphor once more, we are as individuals and as families and as a church, we are God's garden. And in this garden, there are both weeds and fruit. By weeds, I mean, verse 19, the works of the flesh and by fruit, I mean verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the points that Paul makes in this little section is that both, both the weeds and the fruit, they are more than evident, aren't they? So verse 19 tells us, now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, everybody can see them. That awful list of sins listed there in verses 19, 20, and 21, we all know how rotten it is. We can spot it from a mile away. And for us, we see it every day when we open up social media, when we watch the news, or when we read the paper. We see it, if we're honest, in our spouses and our children. Yeah. We see it in our own it's evident. By the same token, the fruit of the Spirit is equally evident. Consider this. When we meet and encounter and interact with truly godly people, we can feel it almost in our bones. When the Spirit is working in us and through us and we experience His presence and power, we know Here's the punchline. Rarely do we confuse the two. Just as when you head out to the garden in your backyard, you don't often confuse an apple with a dandelion. Well, neither do we confuse the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. We see the difference. Again, it is evident. One, the works of the flesh, brings disrepute upon Christ and ultimately results in damnation. The other... The fruit of the Spirit exalts Christ and ultimately leads to glory. Now, if we look at these works of the flesh, again, these weeds, as I'm going to call them this morning, I want us to be able to identify them. And perhaps the best way to do that is to recognize that Paul gives us four categories of weeds here. You've got sexual, religious, social, and excessive. That's one way it all breaks down. The sexual weeds are found in verse 19. Paul tells us, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and then he lists sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And, and let me say at the front end, while there is much overlap here, and this is true throughout both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, there are some particular nuances. For example, 
The Greek word, Your Honor, ESV's translation of sexual immorality is the word porneia, from which we get our English word, pornography. In the Greek, it is a general term that refers to a broad category of sexual impurity. Basically, it includes any and all things, any and all sexual activity outside the confines of marriage. The next word, impurity, ups the ante. It focuses on the defilement and the filthiness that is generated by sexual sin. And then, the third word, sensuality, explains how we get there. It emphasizes the lack of restraint and unbridled passion of sexual license. It's really the picture of just throwing off all restraint and flaunting oneself. You zoom out real quick. What are these sexual sins sprouting like weeds in God's garden? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's porn, isn't it? Think OnlyFans and Tinder, that took up culture and one-night stands. It's married men lusting after their secretaries. It's women divorcing their husbands because they don't feel, they don't feel fulfilled, whatever that means. It's 40-year-olds dressing like 20-year-olds. It's 20-year-olds dressing like harlots and then advertising it on TikTok. Perhaps a microcosm of this was seen just a couple of weeks ago when I made the mistake of taking my family to the fair. You walk around, you see 20 somethings and less than that. You see all of them. It's filth. It's filth. You also have religious weeds. Paul identifies them at the beginning of verse 20 when he lists idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry, at least in its dictionary form, is simply the worship of anyone or anything other than the true and living God. And of course, that's true. But at a heart level, or at a gut level, idolatry is really a quest to find your identity in anything or anyone other than God. The point is, it doesn't require some figurine to be sitting atop of your mantle. Idolatry, idolatry can include health. It can include a jet ski. It can include a white picket fence. Remember elsewhere, Paul equates idolatry with covetousness. Colossians 3, 5. In a related way, you have sorcery. This would include, of course, the easy things that we might think of, like witchcraft or tarot cards, magical potions, incantations, and voodoo dolls. Sorcery here is referring to the occult. It's more than that. It's worse than that. It's deeper than that. Consider this. The Greek word translated sorcery there in verse 20 is the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get our English word Pharmacy. And so what we're talking about here is not just black magic, but really any effort through drugs or psychedelics to manipulate God or to play God. And I would submit to you that our country is currently overrun with these things. Many run to a bottle, a needle, or a pipe seeking to escape from the realities of life. 
It's sad, but this really is how so much of our population goes. Drugs become their sacrament. Others, in a more sanitary form, are busy growing babies in test tubes, euthanizing grandparents, eradicating those with mental disabilities, and murdering little image bearers while they're still in their womb. Mark my words, this is all nothing less than modern-day sorcery. And it is an abomination before God. Paul then turns to expose the social weeds in the garden. And I should say that these are the most voluminous by far. This is that Bermuda grass that is not so easily removed, but so often tolerated. Particularly in Christian circles. The enmity of verse 20 simply refers to a strong hatred toward other people. Could be for political or racial or even religious reasons. Strife is the opposite of peace. It refers to friction. It's the butting of heads. It is routinely seen by Baptist churches when someone doesn't like the color of the apartment. Jealousy is a close cousin of covetousness. It stares across the street at the Joneses. Enraged, it doesn't have all that they have. The middle of verse 20 also mentions fits of anger. While not, a, while not universally a weed that grows in the rotten soil of men, that is usually where this weed is found. Think of red faces with veins popping out, usually preceded by and followed up with vulgar profanity. That's what Paul is referring to. Then you have rivalries. Rivalries here speaks of a selfish ambition, one that manifests itself by viewing those around you as nothing more than stepping stones so that you can further your own agenda. Then at the end of verse 20, Paul mentions dissensions and divisions. These are Siamese twins. These weeds are clearly seen whenever the peace of a local church is at stake. Think disunity, gossip, infighting, church splits. This is one of the ugliest weeds of all. And it certainly does some of the most damage to the garden. Finally, at the end, or rather at the beginning of verse 21, Paul refers to envy. Envy describes a grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. This, this spirit is depicted rather accurately in a cartoon I saw not that long ago from the late 90s. The cartoon features these two well-to-do dogs sitting at a bar drinking together. And then below them in the caption reads this line, It's not just that dogs have to win. But cats have to lose. That's the heart and soul of envy. A quick recap. We're looking at weeds that contaminate God's garden. You've got sexual weeds, religious weeds, social weeds. Finally, Paul rounds, rounds out his list, mind you, one that is not uh, exhaustive, with excessive weeds. You find them in verse 21, drunkenness and orgies. 
to be clear, what is forbidden here is not drinking, but drunkenness. That is to say, drinking way beyond excess. Today we call it getting wasted or plastered. That's what God is talking about here. Related, you have orgies. Now, I think when you and I, when we tend to hear a word like that, our mind immediately goes towards something sexual in nature. And though that is included, this weeds roots go down much deeper. Perhaps a better translation might be something like revelries. I say that because the idea that is being conveyed here is something of a rowdy and wild party. Thinking like a frat party. That's sort of the, the flavor. So zoom out for a moment. These are the weeds that Paul mentions, but I would have you to notice that he doesn't just leave it at that. Because with the sort of identifying of these weeds, there's also a warning issue. And it's a very strong one, one that you and I cannot afford to miss. You find it there in the middle of verse 21, where the apostle says, I warn you, as I warned you before. So this isn't the first time. As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, we cannot sugarcoat this. We cannot dole its sharp edge. But what does Scripture say? That those who do such things, that is to say, those whose lives are characterized by, those whose lives display a pattern of the works of the flesh, what does Paul say? They will not, I repeat, not inherit the kingdom of God. Regardless of your profession of faith, regardless of your baptism, Bible memorization, or church attendance, if your life is one of weeds, as Scripture says, then you will die in your sins and perish for eternity in hell. That is the warning, and it is a sober one indeed. You know what makes it even more sobering? to reflect upon who this warning was given to. Paul is not here writing to the state legislator, the local atheist group, or some parent church organization. Paul is addressing the church. And that reality alone ought to cause us to sober up. It seems to be possible to attend church, to know the hymns, to be able to navigate your Bible and to even speak the coveted language of Christianese and still perish. So why does this life, the life described in verses 19, 20, and 21, why does it lead to perdition and not paradise? Please hear this. Not because... By not doing these things, you somehow qualify for heaven. That's not the point. You can't work your way into heaven any more than you can work your way out of hell. The point is much deeper, much more profound. Such a life evidences a life that is disconnected from the Spirit of God, and therefore disconnected from Christ, who is the Savior. 
say the same thing differently. Someone who makes a practice of verses 19, 20, and 21 reveals that he or she has not in fact received the Spirit and therefore is not a Christian and therefore will not inherit the kingdom of God. To return to the garden metaphor, weeds will have not fit for glory. Rather, weeds will be uprooted and tossed to burn hard. This is why the, the transition of verse 22 is so marked. It's the difference, again, in the garden between an apple and a dandelion. But, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then, and then he goes on to list Notice in all of this that the works of the flesh are set over and against the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to come out from a little bit of a different angle. Weeds produce weeds. Fruit produces fruit. You can think of it this way because there is a principle, one that goes all the way back to the original creation, one that is built into God's world. And I say that because if you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, there is a phrase that is repeated about how God's creation grows, and it goes like this. Each produces according to its kind. Each according to its kind. So dogs produce dogs. Dolphins, dolphins. Cats, cats. Weeds, weeds. Fruit, fruit. Now I labor this because the fruit of the Spirit is not first and foremost the result of you waking up and grinding all day in hopes that somehow you will churn out fruit. Apple trees don't sweat. And they do so, dare I say, naturally. Likewise, the Christian who is connected to the vine and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will naturally, or perhaps you say here, supernaturally, produce fruit. A healthy cherry tree has cherries on it. In the same way, a healthy Christian demonstrates fruit of the Spirit. For clarification, don't take this too far. I'm not suggesting that you bear no responsibility. We are not called to be couch potatoes, thinking spiritual growth will just magically happen by us inhaling and exhaling. But neither should we fall into the trap of thinking that we must muster up this own fruit by our own brute strength. There is a, a biblical balance. For now, I want to briefly go through the passage and identify the fruit, just as we did with the weeds. At the head of the list, in verse 22, is love. This love, church, is a selfless, sacrificial love. It's the type of love that is willing to lay down its life for someone else. Then you have joy. We should be quick to note that joy is different from our modern conceptions of happiness. The difference, you ask? Well, happiness is rooted in our circumstances. I am happy because I am at Disneyland and eating like a cow. 
But when I leave at Disneyland and my stomach hurts, I'm no longer happy. Joy, though, is of a different kind altogether. Joy is the fruit born when a soul delights in God, regardless of the external circumstances. This is why, for example, Christians can be joyful even as they are enduring cancer treatment. Next, you have peace. The scriptures tell us that we have peace because our war with God has ended. And that war has ended because Christ has reconciled us to God through his death, causing our souls to be at rest, to be at peace. Just as we might look out onto a calm lake, one that looks like a sea of glass. And we think to ourselves as we drive by or as we walk by that, that is so peaceful. And so it is with the soul redeemed by Christ. Patience is then found in the middle of verse 22, which might also be rightly translated long-suffering. The Christian, he has drunk deeply from the well of God's patience with him, so he is willing then to extend patience with others. This means that Christians are supposed to be those who have a long fuse. You then come to kindness. Kindness speaks to our disposition. It is a spiritual bent toward caring for those around you, often at your own emotional, physical, and even financial expense. All in kindness is goodness. This is a virtue referring to our behavior or our conduct. It's the idea of complete moral excellence. It means that we are people who walk upright. Faithfulness, which comes at the end of verse 22, describes how Christians are reliable. The faithful one is the one that you can lean on, and when you lean on that one, you're not going to fall over and land on the ground. Verse 23 begins with gentleness. What is being expressed here is perhaps best understood by its opposite. Gentleness is not rough, rude, or rigorous. Instead, gentleness is soft, like a butterfly landing. The last in the list is self-control. This describes the one who is no longer ruled by his passions or his sins, but is instead under the control of the Holy Spirit. Which means that Christian people are to be marked by restraint. given this list, let me be quick to say, just like with the weeds, so it is with the fruit. What Paul is articulating here is a pattern, not perfection. In other words, you aren't supposed to read this like a report card, and that and has sort of letters going down the side where you, where you grade yourself. Some of you are already doing that. You're looking at this list as if it is a report card. To be honest, though, we can all grow in every one of these, can't we? 
We can all grow, for example, in our patience or our gentleness. The point is this. Is the overall pattern of your life one that is marked by weeds or fruit? Is your life one where over the last year, five years, ten years, is it one where you are growing in grace? Let me tackle it again. Will the unbeliever only ever exhibit that which is found in verses 19, 20, and 21? Of course not. Even the reprobate, humanly speaking, can be good sometimes. Well, likewise, will the Christian only ever exhibit all the time and forever what is laid out there in verses 22 and 23 perfectly? Christians stumble, don't they? We fall, we trip, we face plant. And sometimes when we get up from that, we fall again. Again, the point is not so much the specific character traits as it is the entire lifestyle they represent. The overall pattern of the Christian's life, his or her trajectory, it is to be one that manifests the fruit of the Spirit. There are ebbs and flows. There are seasons, just like there are with agriculture. There are times when there's lots of fruit or lots of weeds. There are times when there's less. But the point is, Christians bear the fruit of the Spirit. And let me just add, it can't not be that way. It has to be that way because, remember, the Christian is joined to Christ. Remember what Paul said back in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So catch this. The Christian and Christ are joined together by the very Spirit of God. So because the Christian and because Christ are joined together, the question is this. How can the Christian then not display the fruit of the Spirit? Redeeming grace. How can a pear tree produce grapes? And the answer is, it won't. It can't. Similarly, those who belong to Christ will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Or we could say that Christians will begin to look like Christ because they are joined to Christ. Well, that just raises the next issue. If Christians will look like Christ, what does Christ look like? And here we're not interested in the color of his skin, or his weight, or his height, or his eye color. That's obviously not what we're talking about. When we ask, what does Christ look like? What we're asking is, what is he like? What is Christ like? And the answer is, Christ is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's who he is. You see, Christ is the fruit of the Spirit in common. Let's flesh that out. Let me show you very briefly how Christ is the incarnation of the Spirit's fruit. Go back up to verse 22, the head of the list. When it comes to love, did not Christ manifest his love for us by going 
to the cross. Ephesians 5, 2 reminds us and joins these two ideas together that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ is joy incarnate because he did this, this act of love, not because his arm was twisted behind his back, but because he really wanted to redeem us and make us his. Hebrews 12, 2 gets at it this way. Look at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You remember what that passage is saying? It is saying that Christ looked past the horror of the cross to the joy of sharing unending life with us. That is absolutely staggering. Pressing on, Christ not only demonstrated peace, the scriptures tell us that he created it. Ephesians 2 announces rather triumphantly, but in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, sorry about you, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself, Ephesians 2.14, is our peace. Don't think for a moment that you and I somehow wave the white flag. No, that's not it at all. Rather, Christ has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And by that work of Christ, he has made peace between us and God. I should add that Christ did all of this, not as a tyrant, but as a patient servant. The fruit of the Spirit is, verse 22, patience, and Christ is the epitome of patience. Consider this. He endured all the ignominy of his incarnation. From a child to the cross, Christ patiently accomplished the will of his Father, even when it meant his gruesome demise. Christ also oozed kindness. Think about it. Who did he attract with the dregs of society? Who flocked to him but, but prostitutes and tax collectors? Those who were sick, despised, and outcasts. They all gravitated toward Christ's utter kindness. And you know what? He never cast any of them. Christ was also a model of goodness. We are told that while he was tempted as we are, yet he remained, uh, Hebrews 4.15, without sin. So unlike all of us, Christ, all he ever did was love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love his neighbor as himself. So we can say that Christ was really and truly the only ever good and perfect and righteous Person. You're not good. I'm not good. The little old lady's not good. Only Christ is good. That brings us to the end of verse 22. Faithfulness. Even when the cross was imminent, the Lord Jesus remained faithful. You will remember, no doubt, in the garden on the eve of his betrayal and the rest, Christ 
pleaded with the Father, asking that the cup of God's wrath would pass from him. But then, in the very same breath, Christ added, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours done. And of course, as a faithful son, a faithful servant, and a faithful substitute, Christ drank down the cup of God's wrath for us, down even to its very Verse 23 tells us gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. Church, was not Christ altogether gentle toward his people? Remember what the prophet Isaiah said about him. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's how gentle Christ is toward you. Even though that reed is, is bent over it and the wind has been whipping and it's barely hanging on, Christ is the type where he's not going to come and just sort of snap it off. He's, he's too gentle. And neither will he come to that tiny little candle, that tiny little flame, and lick his fingers and, and snuff it out. Christ is gentle towards sin. Finally, we would do well to recognize Christ as a man of utter self-control. He was never ruled by his sinful passions or by ungodly ambition, but instead, from beginning to end, he only ever yielded to the Spirit's work in his life. The human grace, this is the Christ. He is the incarnation, not just of God, but also of love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is who he is. And as those who are knit together to him by faith, we will also come to resemble him. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit and to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It means we grow in conformity. Christ. Well, all that remains for us now, then, is this. How do we grow in God's glory? How do we grow and thrive and bear fruit? Well, as the 20th century Samuel Henry Hook put, a vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. Christian, it is an exercise in futility for me to stand up here and scold you, thinking that by me badgering you, that you will somehow bear fruit. I can't yell at a tree and expect fruit to come about as a result. So if not by badgering, then how do we grow? Please hear this. This is important. We grow not by scolding, but by beholding. You see, the more you see and savor Christ, the more that you fix your gaze upon Him, the more that you abide in Him and are captivated by Him, the more fruit you are. I should be quick to say the more fruit you have, the less weeds you'll have. And that's because the fruit will choke out the weeds. Think for a moment of what 
Christ told his disciples in John 15. I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser, and, and we, the disciples, we are the branches. If you allow me to push that metaphor just a little bit further, the spirit is the sap that gives us branches life as we are connected to the vine. In other words, we bear fruit, beloved, by being joined to, united with, and plugged into Jesus Christ. So what you need is more Christ. It will do me or you no good for me to stand up here and scold you and say, Christian, pump out more joy. <laughs> what you need is to behold Christ, who is himself joy. And as you sink your teeth into him, as you taste and see that Christ is good, so joy will be produced in you. But, and this is where so many error, none of this means we are to be utterly passive. Apple trees produce apples, and Christians produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is Christ. That's all true. But, nonetheless, we are still exhorted, verse 25, to keep in step with the Spirit. So we do have something to do. Sitting on your hands, living on Netflix, and scrolling through Facebook will not result in good, healthy fruit in your life. What you will have instead is a ton of weeds. So then what does it look like practically to, verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit? What's the water, the sunshine, the fertilizer of our spiritual garden? In short, it is gathering together to read the word, pray the word, sing the word, preach the word, and see the word. Let me put it to you this way. If you would grow in grace, then you must avail yourselves of the ordinary means of grace. If you would resemble Christ, then you must put yourself where Christ promises to be. In his word, with his people, on his day. Christian, if you would bear the fruit of the Spirit, then you must immerse yourself in the one to whom the Spirit points, namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, what you need is more than Christ. And then, got to be patient. Just as fruit in your garden at home takes time to grow and mature and be healthy, so it is with the Christian life. It rarely happens overnight. Christ doesn't just zap you and instantly and perfectly sanctify you. We, as, as people, we get this. None of us would go outside this afternoon, put a seat in the ground, grab a lawn chair, put binoculars on it, and go, it's been 12 seconds. Where's the fruit? You know, that's nuts. And yet, how often do we do that around to the lives? Be patient. Tend to your soul. Pull the weeds. Make sure that the soil is being watered. And wait. Wait for the fruit to sprout. Father,
Father, we would petition you this morning in the name of Christ. We would do so asking that as Christ's people, we would more faithfully represent Christ. And so, in, in, in pleading with you this morning, what we are pleading for is more of Christ. That your spirit would foster, that your Holy Spirit would foster within us a, a desire to see Christ and to love Christ and to know Christ. We recognize that we will not grow in Christ through our own resolutions, or our own resolve. We need your spirit to do a work in us from the inside out so that we would trust and treasure Christ and therefore bear fruit. And so that is what our prayer is this morning, even as we begin now to prepare to, pre- prepare to approach the table of the Lord. We pray that you would be fostering spiritual growth in our lives. And we pray as well that you would be working in our lives, that we would love and encourage the people who are around us. We pray that that you would do all of this work, Father, in us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.